You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentary's Global Rankings. Hello, welcome to Nick Luck Daily. It is Tuesday the 2nd of May. I hope you had a lovely bank holiday yesterday. I went to Windsor Racecourse with the family in the family zone for a family day and had a right good time, I have to say. I thought it was absolutely excellent, everything that they, they put on there. Uh, good access to, to see the horses. The kids love that. Um, there was lots of fun having the, the kid area with some silly games played as well. And um, yes, I would highly recommend doing that if you have a, a young family. Didn't back any winners, but there you go. Such is life. Uh, Lee Mottishead is my guest today. We are going to look ahead to the Guineas this weekend. Uh, we... Do you know, I, I, this is an apology, first up, to, to all listeners who are sick to the back teeth of the white paper. So if you don't want to hear about the white paper, skip forward about three minutes. Because I th- think it's only right that somebody that's written about this a, a good bit over the weekend, Lee Motter said, just just gives his view on last week's white paper. Lee, welcome along. We'll deal with this and then get into the fun stuff. Go. Fun stuff, yeah. Um, I think, like most people have um, said, Tom, the, the white paper was, I think disappointing um in the sense that we've waited so long for it and my goodness we've waited so long for it um and then when it actually came it did feel um as though the government were seeking um to delay things even further really yes they came out with some uh, judgments on certain issues um and they put forth some figures for what we used to call affordability checks but there's still an awful lot really where you sense that what they're really trying to do is delay having to do anything and to pass the ball where possible to the gambling commission fudge, an organization I think was the, fudge was yeah the absolutely view. yeah and i think fudge is perfectly fair um so i think there was a, there was an awful lot that was disappointing within it it's a huge document that doesn't say as much as you think it, it, it would do uh the the, the element i went on uh, with my column on Monday in the Post, Tom, just really because it's something I've written about plenty in the past and it hadn't really been written about in relation to the white paper, was that it does talk about bookmaker restrictions on punters and very, really sort of symptomatic um, of the the entire white paper. It talks about why uh, restrictions are a real problem. It outlines that there is a feeling that it's sending punters towards the black market and that they give the impression that bookmakers are really only interested in losing punters, not engaging with winning punters. So it outlines why there's a real problem with them. But ultimately, it says there's not much we can do here, Gov. Um, it's a, it's an issue really for bookmakers to set their own uh, commercial limits on whose business they want to take or don't take. What it really says is that bookmakers need to be more transparent so that, I guess, instead of punters being told that they are being uh, allowed to have £1.26 on a horse in the 2000 guineas, that traditionally they've just said it's a trading decision. I think bookmakers might have to be a little bit more open and say, you know, we think you win too much. Um, punters are racing's customers. They are, they're people who bet on racing. They're people who go racing. And where punters are being told by bookmakers that just because they're quite good at beating SP or because they are finding a few more winners than bookmakers like, um, and therefore, in effect, they're being told, we don't want your business anymore. It should be racing that represents racing's customers in that situation. Now, that generally hasn't happened enough. Um, We've got a BHA chair now, Joe Somerset-Smith, who is a punter, who has long been a punter and who does now thankfully see himself as the punter's voice within the corridors of power. And I'm sure uh, he will be pushing this as much as he can. But I think racecourses, um, for example, um, you would like them to be to be more vocal when signing contracts with bookmakers, but bookmakers to an extent have the upper hand. You look at a situation now where Betfred has been signed up to win uh, to, as the sponsor of the Derby. Now, I don't imagine the jockey club felt it was in a position to say to Fred, now Fred, those punters that you're restricting, um, can you be looking at 
to can you just improve your your position on that if they're signing deals with Bet365 or Paddy Power or Coral or whoever? I don't imagine that that is part of the conversation because the race courses need the bookmakers more than the bookmakers need um, the race courses. But it is regrettable. You have different jurisdictions that are uh, more enthusiastic at standing up for punters. Australia, having been the example that is referenced most often and is referenced within the white paper, which talks about the minimum bet rule. And I know that bookmakers over here often talk about or often say that the minimum bet rule isn't the panacea that some people think it is. Well, I would just return to the bookmakers and say, we only talk about the need for a minimum bet rule because in too many instances, you do not treat punters in the way that you should do. And if you weren't restricting so many punters and the the white papers talks about operators believing uh, on their figures it's an upper limit of three percent but the white paper thinks it's more than that because bookmakers tend to use the term restricted to account for the close as well if you weren't treating punters in a way that is sending them away from the sport then we wouldn't have to talk about a minimum bet rule so i would love to see racing as a sport that's the governing body and the race courses just representing punters more um, hungrily, more enthusiastically and more sincerely in this particular area of punters' relationship with bookmakers. New market this weekend then. Eight races each day across those three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, with a couple added, one to, to Friday and one to Sunday. Ali, the, the race has been added to the Friday is the Bet365 mile. And in addition to that race is a native trail so light infantry was the the favorite when it was going to be run last weekend and um he's now a good bit bigger than the native trail that's that's ascot's loss isn't it yeah so obviously when you do um have races rescheduled um there will sometimes be losers as well as winners the loser in this instance is ascot that's got its royal ascot trials card on Wednesday, one of the um, the trial races on that day was a trial for the Queen Anne, the Paradise Stakes, which Native Trail was due to contest. Now, though, you have got a Group 2 option at Newmarket, um, which is being staged on ground that will be more conducive to Native Trail than it would have been the case had the race been run at uh, Sandown on Friday, for which he wasn't a contender. So now, in effect, you have a new option available to Native Trail, and he's heading to Newmarket and not to Ascot, for which he wasn't declared um but it does add uh, it adds more to that friday new market card as does um the gordon richard stakes to the the sunday card at um new market as well what is at the top of your talking point list for the for the 2000 guineas lee i think it's a fascinating 2000 guineas um tom i think um even more so than usual you have got a number of horses that you're wondering are you going to have the stamina for the the Guineas Mile and some horses that you're wondering, um, you know, will you just be too quick for the Guineas Mile and will you ultimately end up as sprinters? David Yates on the pod yesterday um, talked about that in relation to Aidan O'Brien's two principal challenges, August Rodin and Little Big Bear. And I completely agree with that. I wonder if Little Big Bear will get home. I wonder if August Rodin is just going to be so much more of a derby horse. He won't quite have the toe to win a 2000 guineas um the horse i've backed for the race myself Roll scotsman you could you could argue that would he have the stamina for a guineas but he's also been put in the derby so connectors really think he does have as well um and i think it perhaps the 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 other embodiment of that um will you have enough stamina to win a 2000 guineas is sakir who was so tremendously impressive um at haydock on his way to uh, an almost seemingly dazzling victory in the Mill Reef Stakes, he looked incredibly quick on both occasions. He's galloped at Newmarket on the way to the Guineas. And if he can have, if his brilliance can hold over a mile, he would be a major player as well. So I think it's a, a thrilling looking 2000 Guineas, a, an exciting 1000 Guineas as well. Now that Dermot Weld has indicated that Tahira will run because anyone who watched her win the Moigler Stud Stakes will have been desperate to see her compete in the 1,000 guineas. I think there's maybe more quality at this stage in the 2,000 guineas, but they're both really interesting races this year. Uh, Roger Varen is, is going to be on the pod, which I'm afraid you won't have a chance to to react to, but I'm going to be speaking to him uh, soon enough. What, what, what would you like me to ask him, other than the obvious, will your horse stay, which he will say he hopes so? 
I suppose we'd want to be knowing um, to what extent has Sakia grown and developed um, over the winter. Um, I suppose we'd be looking at saying what did that uh, gallop that we saw during the Craven meeting, what did that tell us about Sakia and his Guinea's claims? Um, I suppose we, we we also want to be saying, hearing Roger um, asked if he's, if he's confident in the horse has built on on last year he was very adamant after the mill reef stakes that this was his this was his best two-year-old and roger's not a man who um bigs up horses unnecessarily he's quite reserved in his commentary on horses but i i felt he was very happy to be openly enthusiastic about sakir as a juvenile i wonder if he feels the same about the horse as a three-year-old and i suspect he does do you think he'll stay a mile lee uh, I don't know. I don't know. That's that's a real sitting on the fencing, isn't it, Tom? Mm. If I had to go on one, one side of that fence, I would say my expectation is that we will see him in the Commonwealth Cup at Royal Ascot. Um, and from that, I think I can take it. You can take it to mean I don't think he'll 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 stay the Guineas Mile, or at least I think he'd be more effective as a six furlong horse than a mile horse. That's probably my my hunch, but I could easily be proved wrong because it might well be that his brilliance can last that. But the Guineas tends to be a really hard run race, and I think it's hard for horses who don't properly stay the trip to win that race. So I suspect Sakir is more a sprinter, but if Roger Varian comes out and says to you, I'm confident he's a miler, I'll be even more excited for Saturday's Guineas. Well, here is Roger Varian. I presume you're not running to make up the numbers. You, you confident he'll stay a mile? afternoon um i think on pedigree he's got every chance of staying um he hasn't raced beyond six and he he looked a quick horse you know at that trip last last autumn so we'll have to see um i think he's in good good shape um he's trained training very nicely and um you know we'll, we'll get that stamina question answered at the weekend has he changed from from two to three? Sort of aside from obviously growing a bit, I imagine. But but anything, any mental changes you've, you've noted? Um, I, I wouldn't say so. Um, enormously, no. He, he he had a, a lovely attitude um, to racing into his work last year. Um, great temperament. Um, you know, very straightforward around around the yard and in his training and. And, and the same has been the case, you know, all the way through this pro- um, No, to be honest. No, fine. And um, he he, mi- did, he missed his intended last start last year, did he? But but everything's been absolutely straightforward over the over the winter. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, he's had a good winter and he's had a smooth smooth preparation into the guineas. And as far as the the one thousand goes, Olivia Meralda, um, obviously she's a, a new acquisition for your your yard. Is she gonna gonna line up first start for you in the one thousand? That's the plan. Yeah, yeah. We had her declared to run in the, the Fred Darling at Newbury. And, um, the trainer didn't think that would be the best thing to do on the heavy ground with a mm. new to running in the Guineas. Um, she's training lovely actually, and I think that uh, that piece of form in the debutante stakes of a um, last year, you know, reads very well um, in the context of the overall uh, Guinea's, Guinea's form. And I think if she can bring a repeat of that performance or even improve on it, um, you know, she, she, she's no fallen hope, I don't think. Just out of interest, the, the, the two Guinea's horses we've touched on, one obviously you wanted to give a trial to um, Sakir, you're, you're happy to go straight there. But what's the rhyme and reason behind, behind approaching the, the horses or the races like that? individuals and you know where you exactly where you are you know with them in their in their program in their training um how, how what sort of a performance they might give you in a trial how they might come out of a trial um so you know it's not it's not, it's not one size fits all mm. um charon of course you know trialed him a greenham and he's likely to run him a 2000 as well um so you know, I think uh, I think you can take different approaches with, with different horses, and um, we'll see how it all pans out over the weekend. How's Charon come out of that? Yeah, he's really come out of it 
forward nicely for for web trial. Um, he's a very laid back um, individual, very uh, almost off opposite um, to Sakir, who, who's an exuberant horse in his work and and in his racing. I think Charon is is a very talented colt um, who's um, arguably improved with every career starts. Um, very laid back in his work, felt he'd really benefit from a trial. And um, although he didn't win the Greenham, I thought he ran ran uh, um, perfectly well. Uh, would have come forward nicely for the run, and um, we're looking forward to running him as well. See, much has been made of, of Sakir, whether or not he'll get the trip. I mean, on pedigree, he'd be more likely than Charon, wouldn't he? I think he probably would, you know, pure, purely on pedigree. Um, Charon is bred to be very, very quick. Uh, uh, always looked like, you know, when he went further, he'd be better. Um, that was over six furlongs last year. I thought in the, in the Greenham, he was under pressure early, as a lot of them were on the heavy ground. But, um, you know, arguably he got through the line, you know, a bit better than all the runners. Mm. Um, but, you know, hats off to, to Brian Mean and his team. You know, the winner won very well. Um, take nothing away from the winner, but I thought Charon was very strong through the line. And, and you know, that, that in itself gives us confidence about the mile. Will Al Husson go to the Dahlia, Roger, on Sunday? Yes, sir. A plan. Um, she's training really well, and she needs to step up on on anything she's done previously. But she's she's won over a mile and a mile and a quarter on the Rowley Mile. You know, in competitive handicaps, these handicaps last autumn. Um, pedigree uh, suggests she should improve as she gets older, and, and you know she looks great in her homework. Um, the nine furlongs on the Rowley Mile, you know, looks like a lovely starting point for her. And just finally, your your ledger winner is he's going to be campaigned as a cup horse this year. And, and where might we see him first? That's an assumption I'm making. I could be completely wrong, of course. No, we think he's a cup horse, and that's certainly the route we'll, we'll start start out on. He worked uh, this morning actually under under David Egan, and um, he he worked lovely. He's just starting to come come to himself at the right time, and he's likely to go to York for the Yorkshire Cup. Roger, appreciate your time. All the best this weekend. The other point, Lee, guineas-wise, which you pointed out to me before we went on air, is um, the, the relative prices about the Godolphin horses. So Silver Knot is now a good bit shorter than Noble Style because Silver Knot has William Buick jocked up and, and Noble Style has James Doyle jocked up. I don't think that's what we were expecting necessarily before their racecourse gallops, is it? No, they galloped again um, on the Roly Mile uh, a couple of weeks ago. And when they galloped, William Buick rode the uh, tremendously impressive uh, Jim Crack winner. Noble style, of course, had been due to go for the Greenham Stakes, but the ground ruled him out on that occasion. William Buick rode Noble style. James Doyle rode Silver Knot, the Autumn Stakes winner, who went on to finish second at the Breeders' Cup. At that point, Noble style was a general 8-1 to one shot for the 2000 Guineas. Silver Knot was a general 16-1 to one shot. If you look at the betting now for the 2000 guineas, um, the Kipco 2000 guineas, Silver Knot is 10, 12 to 1 with most firms. Noble Style, although 10 to 1 still with a number of firms, he's out to 16 with some and out to 20 with one of the major layers. And that presumably reflects the fact that, according to jockey bookings at the moment, William Buick is down to ride Silver Knot and James Doyle is down to ride Noble Style. And say so the riding arrangements when those two horses worked two weeks ago on the Rolly Mile indicated that at that stage, William Buick was expecting to ride Noble Style and James Doyle was expecting to ride Silver Knot. It appears that um, the pecking order within the Charlie Appleby team going into this race has changed since that date two weeks ago. Well, man of the moment from last year was James Doyle having won both guineas and he joins me now, going to have a, a ride in each. Um, James, welcome along. We, we've just been touching on, on Noble Style, actually, in, in comparison to Silver Knot, who, um, well, did, did you always think it would be Noble Style you were you were riding or was it touch and go? I think so. Well, after we, we did a race course gallop with them um, about 10 days ago and... Um, I think after that, um, I, I guess it, it, it looked uh, visually that um, Silver Knot, I, who I actually rode that day, it looked like he kind of worked a bit better than the Noble Style. But 
He's a tricky one, Noble Star, because his work was pretty exceptional before he first ran as a two-year-old. And after he bolted up at Ascot that day, his his work at home, whether he just goes through the motions or what, but he's been pretty unimpressive um, in, in his homework. So we were hoping he kind of would spark up a little bit on the track. And he, he didn't seem to do that. But I think... Um, Hopefully, on, in in race conditions, can it must kind of get his blood up because, like I say, after his win on debut, he didn't work fantastic by any means, and you know he, he obviously won his novice under a penalty and then went on to win it um, at York pretty pretty nicely in a pretty smart race. So mm. um, let's hope he saves his best in the track. And are you confident he'll get a mile? I wouldn't say confident. No, I mean on on on. On his dam's side of his pedigree, his dam was pretty smart. She was related to um, some pretty smart horses, but they were all kind of six furlong horses, so there's a lot of speed in, in his dam side. Obviously, he's by Kingman, which uh, gives you a bit of bit of hope um, that the mile could be with his, within his compass, but he's a strong travelling horse that, in his races, he showed a good turn of foot, but we'll just have to see how... how how he gets the mile really mm. and, and what sort of feel did Silver not give you in the gallop I thought he, he worked pretty solid like um, we had a sensible lead horse in there he, he travelled up really nicely and I just felt that he kind of went through his gears nicely without having a really good turn of foot I think he's a horse that that, that will um, stay, a, stay a mile no problem as we've seen in the past but I think um he doesn't have a dynamic turn of foot, so I think I could see Will kind of put him up there on the sharp end and just keep him going through those gears. You obviously rode the, the 1,000 Guineas winner last year. You've ridden Fairy Cross on her debut. I'm sure you know her very well. Um, how do you assess her chances? Yeah, look, she's, she's, she's quite a big price, and I suppose that's kind of reflected in what she's achieved, but she's been very consistent on what she has done today. Uh, she, she obviously won the Prestige last yeah, um, she had a nice run over in Dubai uh, where we didn't think she was 100% right. She just kind of hung a bit under pressure and it was actually Morge that beat her that day and obviously Morge went out, ran out a very ready, ready winner. Um, but I thought her run in this trial was pretty good considering we had a hell of a headwind up there that day and it, horses definitely seemed to be better you know, running at the pace and getting plenty of cover, uh, in which the winner did that day. I mean, the winner won um, a couple of lengths and came from well off the gallop, whereas Fairy Cross was right up in the thick of things. She had no cover, and um, that just seemed to take its toll on her late on. Um, like she seems to um, have plenty, well, she's got plenty of experience on her side, which should stand her in good stead. Whether she's quite up to... Um, Winning the Guineas will be remain to be seen, but she she's certainly uh, hopefully a lively outsider. And is Russell going to go under you in the, the Palace House? You've got a good record on him. Yeah, he is. He is, and um, yeah, he, he obviously went. He, he took giant strides last year, didn't he? he improved a hell of a amount. Um, we thought Dubai would suit him in, in the sense he likes a fairly kind of sharpish track. Uh, but he, he, he's the, the key to kind of Russell is getting that beautiful kind of training sp- spot on him with plenty of cover and the way the races were run out in Dubai just didn't seem uh, see him to best effect at all he ended up either on a wing or with no cover and just doing slightly too, too much so uh, if can get the, the, the right kind of draft into the race I'm sure um, the guys are all really happy with him since he's come back so it's all about getting that right pitch on him, really. Mm. All right, James, thanks for your time. Good luck at the weekend. Good man. Cheers, Tom. Lee, where would York rank amongst your favourite race courses? I adore York, uh, Tom. The number of times I've eulogised about York in the Racing Post and indeed on this excellent platform, uh, number of times is many. Um, it's a wonderful track. They get pretty much, well, they do get everything right, I think. They understand about value, which is not surprising in the north. Um, and they have tremendous customer service. It's a fantastic viewing track. It's even got the benefit of you can walk into town afterwards. We adore York, Tom. I love York. 
Um, I think just about my favourite uh, four days of the flat season is that Ebor meeting. Um, I, I'm a huge Royal Ascot fan. I'm a huge a new market fan. I love the July course, uh, but but there's something about those for those, those four days in August which I I always look forward to. Uh, this relates to Wednesday the 17th of May, though only Wednesday the 17th of May. The Nick Luckdale partnered up with York Racecourse for a special offer as a discount code for grandstand and paddock tickets only. And York will reduce the admission price by 50% to be just £12. It's set up for groups of five or less. It expires on the 8th of May at 4pm. So you've got to use the code NLD York, NLD York, when booking those tickets. Uh, it expires, as I say, on the, on the 8th of May, one order per customer. And no other offer can be used in conjunction with this. In conjunction with this offer, it's subject to availability. But get your tickets for just twelve quid. That's fifty percent off grandstand and paddock admission tickets for York on Wednesday, the seventeenth of May. One other point I wanted to touch upon was great work from from Nick to to get um, John Warren and Dermot Weld on on the pod yesterday to talk about the respective chances of slip of the pen not going. And uh, to hear her uh, basically don't well confirming that she is going to go for the for the one thousand guineas. Now there was uncertainty relating to that. I thought this was this was big news in the racing world. Lee, what I always find interesting is just to look at the 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 interaction on on social media. I know the Twitter barometer isn't necessarily the perfect indication of how big a news piece is, but generally, I think in in we can we can see how much that has landed with the public. I think it might have got more of a reaction had this been Willie Mullins telling us that his favourite for the mayor's novice's hurdle was definitely going to to go and run at, at Cheltenham. This, I, I was surprised at just just sort of how how little response it got. If you like, is that a tale of the early flat season? I think it's increasingly a tale of the early flat season, Tom. I think if you looked at most. Um, racing platforms, media platforms, they would tell you that their engagement with listeners, viewers, readers uh, is not as great during the flat season as the jump season. Um, the, the harsh truth of flat racing is that jump racing is more popular with racing fans than flat racing. I think that's true in Britain and Ireland. And I think it's a, a particularly difficult time of the year because obviously we've just come off the big jump spring festivals um, and we are entering a period and we're looking at races primarily that involve horses who have not had that many starts. Um, there were, if you look down the 2000 guineas and the 1000 guineas, even I think for quite enthusiastic racing fans, you have to remind yourself who these horses are. Now that's not a, that's not a bad thing. It's part of the joy of, of horse racing is, is reintroducing yourself to these exciting two-year-olds, some of whom only raced once or twice as juveniles. But I think it does make it harder to, to sell the guineas. If you look as well at the way that the, the guineas are these days, increasingly it's the case, I think, certainly compared to back in the 70s, 80s, and maybe even the 90s, that horses are less likely to contest trials before the guineas so you don't get a sighter of them beforehand you don't get a reminder of them beforehand if you look at the betting for this year's 2000 guineas uh the top six in the market august rodin little big bear chaldine sakir royal scotsman and silver knot none of those have raced this season i know chaldine came out of the stalls at, at newby but sadly not with a jockey so that means that in effect we haven't seen him race this season so all those six horses um are horses that haven't been uh, seen on the track in 2023 i think that makes it harder for punters and racing fans to be engaged with the contest and they do come along very quickly you know you have a situation whereby um, the guineas trials are over within the space of a week and then two weeks later we go straight into into the guineas so you don't have much of a build-up on the way to these races and i think they almost take some people by surprise whereas at least by the time you get to the Derby and the Oaks and Royal Ascot. We have had more evidence in the book, if you like, um, and punters and racing fans are more likely to feel connected to the horses that they're watching. So I do think maybe increasingly the guineas 
is one for the absolute purists and that for some it just takes a little bit longer to really get an interest in the flat season. Right, Kentucky Derby chat now. Here's Nick. Well, Tom, by the time you listen to this, I'll be winging my way across the Atlantic to join my NBC colleagues ahead of the 149th running of the Kentucky Derby. And over the last few days, we've been profiling a different contender each day, and we've been doing that with the support of our friends at Qatar Racing, who are now expanding their operation globally, including significantly in the United States of America. So now the draw has been unveiled, full field of 20, of course, for the Kentucky Derby. And we haven't caught up with any of the Brad Cox runners. Brad, of course, who was officially credited with Kentucky Derby success on the disqualification of Benita Spirit with the promotion of Mandaloon a couple of years ago. How this Louisville native would love to win the race outright on the day. One of his chances here is verifying. Verifying finished second last time to the highly touted Tappet Trice. Runs in the Magna Silks for the Coolmore Partners and Associates and has drawn stall two, which would worry some. I posted a call last night to Charlie O'Connor of Coolmore America and the first question was about that stall. Well, to be honest with you, we're not uh, ecstatically happy. It could have been better. But I think that, um, you know, he, he, he's always a horse that breaks well and he breaks clean and he breaks fast. And I suppose with not a lot of pace in this race, you know, we're, we're going to have to take it. So, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty optimistic about it. I first saw this horse when you were there, in in, in point of fact, at, at Aqueduct when he he finished second in the in the Champagne to a good good yeah on the slop, but to a good horse of Chad Brown's Blazing Sevens who hasn't made it to the to the Derby. He's he's come quite a long way since then, but even then you were saying you thought he he could be a pretty smart one. Yeah, we, we've been very happy with him, and we we thought that he he ran a very good race in the Bluegrass. He was beaten by a good horse, and. Um, we, we think he's coming into the race very nicely and he's just progressing along nicely. And uh, I think we've, we, we haven't seen the best of him yet. He's, um, he's got that form with all the horses we've been talking about this week. Confidence game. We heard from Keith Zormo earlier in the week. Tap it trice. A lot of people think he's the most naturally talented horse and you're only a neck behind him in the Bluegrass. Yeah. Is there anything sure. specifically about Saturday's race that you think will really bring him into his own? What we need, Nick, is we need a clean break and I think we'll be up in the pace and I think it could be his race to win. Really? You're, you're, you're that confident of a, of a really big shout? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, so Brad said after the break, he said, you know what? He said, it's not the worst, worst thing in the world. And uh, w- w- he, he's a clean breaker. So let's break, break him out, get up there close to the pace and it'll be our race to lose. And it will not be lost on anyone that this is a a, a cult by Justify, the the Triple Crown winner who who, who you stand. Which would make it more more special that he's by Justify. You're obviously taking such a a, a forensic interest in the the progeny of Justify and and how they're progressing. Are there there facets, are there characteristics that you're starting to pick up in terms of the way they're developing, the the way they're going now that you're seeing a classic crop on the ground? I'll tell you what we see about the justifies is that they all seem very, very genuine and have a heart, you know, like they're all triers. You know, we've seen some some fillies, you know, win, win a race who's on the rail, just win by a nose that should have probably be beaten. So they all have a big heart and they're big triers. So if you get out, get somewhere near the lead and, and there's that usual schmozzle to the the first bend you'd be you'd be confident that this is a horse that will you know get his elbows sharp and say yeah i don't mind that i don't mind the rough and tumble Uh, absolutely absolutely big time uh charlie you've you've lived in in kentucky in the lexington area near versailles for 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 a long time now i mean what would it mean just to be to be you know associated with a with a derby winner like this 
I, I, I couldn't describe, I, I wouldn't know how to describe it. It would be absolutely unbelievable. And I've worked for the Magner family for a long, long time. And I think for them and for Mr. Magner, who, who bought Justify and had faith in him and bred a lot of very, very good mares to him, I, I wouldn't be more proud and happy f- for them for, for this to happen. I guess I've just found the answer to what you give a, a man who's got everything answer a Kentucky Derby. It'll be unbelievable. Um, Charlie, thanks so much for your time today. I'll let you get on. Nick, thank you. Cheers. It's Tuesday, so we go around the Bloodstock world with Weatherbees on the Nick Luck Daily podcast. And we have Kathy Grassick on the line of Newtown Stud of Brian Grassick Bloodstock. And uh, more recently, the chair of the Irish Thoroughbred Breeders Association. Kathy, how, how does all that sound? It, 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 I'm painting a busy picture of you. Um, well, the, the, that's the saying, if you want something done, ask a busy person. So um, I, I'm i 100% committed to, to the bloodstock industry from whatever side I've, I've taken on the challenge. So, um, yeah, um, I mean, obviously very involved in, in the family stud farm with my mother and also my sister, Sally Ann. So um, that has has been something that has been going from strength to strength and obviously I took over Brian Grassic bloodstock from my late father um which is also um been going very well for us but um more recently and and thanks to the legacy of my father um I I joined um after being elected the council of the Irish Thoroughbred Breeders Association and um have managed to be very uh thankfully and very appreciatively of all the support of my fellow council members been elected to to chair so it's it's been a, a busy 12 months this is pretty much the we're coming up on 12 months of of my first year as as chair so it it's been definitely a busy 12 months i took over from john McHenry sort of in the wake of brexit and covid um, and we've a lot of challenges to face, as as does everybody in the bloodstock industry. There's there's a variety of different different things that we're all facing into. And you know, and that that's I guess that's topical at the moment, um, which which we can come to. But one thing from just doing a bit of background reading of, on you was whether or not it was written in the stars you were going to work in horse racing and the, and the breeding industry. I, I don't know quite possibly, but your, your love of the horse and the family's love of the horse really shines through in everything I've read. Yeah. I think that's something that's very important to us. If I wasn't working in horses, you know, they're my, they're my hobby. They're my, they're my pastime. They're my passion. Whether I'm working in racing, I also uh, produce sport horses, um, you know, very much as, as an amateur um, love and I've retrained some X racehorses um, and you know I just love being around horses whether it's you know from Connemara ponies right up to thoroughbreds that was something that's you know it's very passionate and it's something that I've inherited you know down the generations I think we can we can trace our love of horses back to my my great grandfather um, so that's something that's that's you know, coming out in all of our family. And what? So, well, while we're on this topic, I, I know that that you and and your sister Sally Ann and and Kevin Blake and and others have have set up stand up for racing, really in light of the the negative publicity that that came off the back of the Grand National and, and in the build up to it. And um, why did you feel there was such a need to do that, Kathy? Yeah. So, Quiva Doherty, Kevin Blake, myself, and Sally Ann set up stand up for racing, really as a response to the misinformation that was being put about. You know, we felt lack of correct and correct information is there, but it wasn't getting to the right people, and that we were allowing, um, you know, untruths uh, go unchecked in in the public domain, and really we just wanted to, um, to bring that message to other people. Obviously, um, Sally Anna and myself were very involved with um, thoroughbred tales with a number of other um you know key people in the industry and that's all about bringing the the story behind the scenes to people in racing um and also to people outside of racing to show them exactly what goes you know on um, behind behind the scenes and give them a good picture and and it was off the back of that that we have very strong feelings um about the misinformation and we want it as a resource i mean that's the most important thing it's not an official body it's not something for 
you know, for for solving, you know, going in and fighting crime or solving problems. It really is a resource for the general public and for the media to get the right information and also to have access to people who can go on these programs or write articles or, you know, appear on radio shows or podcasts and, and really talk about the truth, you know, the truth behind behind racing. Yeah, and I know that you've got um, uh, Jay Mangan, who's a regular contributor to the to the podcast, and and of course yes. Nick Luck, the host, as yeah. spokespeople <laughs> for the for stand up yeah. to racing. Right, um, take me back, just Newtown stud wise, then. Yeah, some <laughs> of the the great success that that you have had over the years through through the family. Um, is it a very different scene now? Would you would you say to to, to perhaps you know when when your father was, was doing it a good few years ago do you, do you have to think differently now do you think think outside the box a little or is it rather similar um I'd, I'd like to think he'd be very very proud of where you know my mother Sheila and myself and Sally Ann have, have taken the farm what when when it started um it probably wasn't um as, as commercial an entity but um as you say things times have changed and and um in order for a, a farm to survive commerciality is very important in 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 this current market, um and and it is something that we have we've grown the business, um and we've worked very hard to to deliver a high standard of service to our clients, whether that's just you know from a, from a breeding point of view or in the marketplace at the sales ring. And I mean, some of the names that have, that, that that you've had there, um, Phoenix Phoenix of Spain, for example. Flotus, that 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 there are some some seriously talented horses here. Who I guess d- does the success of the of the farm depend on the the quality of horses that are coming through? Absolutely. I mean, I'd love to have Brad Phoenix in Spain myself, but I actually bought the dam of Phoenix of Spain for clients Cherry and Arrow Festa, who are Turgor stud, and um, they very kindly send the mare here to foal, and we prep this stock for the sales for them. Um. And it's been it's been a wonderful partnership. You know, we've been very lucky to um, to sell the stock for them. And Phoenix of Spain was obviously a horse that's very important to us. Um, but our clients' horses are every bit as important as our homebred ones. So obviously, Flotus um, was my mother bred with Tim Paps in partnership, and and she's been extremely um, you know important for us. We have her dam here, and um, she has a full sister yearling and a full brother colt. So the, it's going to be exciting for us to be able to take, you know, the likes of those horses to, to, to the sales, and, um, you know, that that's something that's very important as, as as well to us. You know, we we look after all sides of things, but yeah, the quality of the stock is very important. We're we're very lucky. We um we've also had some stock from one of uh, your recent guests, Heike Bischoff of Goldstore Stud. Mm. Um, and she has sold some stock with us as well. And we've been very, you know, we're very grateful to them for supporting us. Um, but our clients are not just clients, they're, they're friends and they're, they're family and they're every bit as important to us as, as the horses they bring. Has the, the role at the ITBA, has that, I mean, has that landed a more on your plate, if you like, than you've ever had before? Was, 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 there, was there always room for it in your life? I mean, we have a wonderful team here at Newtown Studs, you know, as well as the fam, you know, the family members. We also have Caroline Hannan, who is farm manager. We have a great team of staff, and my husband Jamie Lowry also works here as well. So, um, that that that's fantastic. I wouldn't be able to do it without the support of a of a great team, um, but also the support of the of the council in the ITBA and the girls who work in the office in the ITBA. So chief executive Una Tormi, um, education um, executive Hannah Marks and membership developer uh, Danielle Den- Devaney. They are the <laughs> wind beneath my wings, I suppose. I couldn't I couldn't do any of this if it wasn't for the support of a great team in the office and a great council. What are the what are the greatest challenges? Um, facing the the Irish breeding industry, do you think, and, and something that that you feel that the ITBA need to need to address firsthand? Um, so we completed a strategic review a couple of years ago, um, just before COVID, um, and so we're carrying out a lot of the things that our membership raised at the moment. Um, so one of those things was to reignite um the the uh next generation, um, and we have a very successful next generation committee. 
And I think that's one of the most important things is is not to, you know, to rest on your laurels, to keep looking forward and looking at the next generation as to where, you know, the decision makers and the breeders for, for the future generations are coming from. And I think that's very important to ensure the future of our of our industry. And so we have Chair um, Orla Dunworth and Vice Chair Connor Wickstead, and they have a committee of 12 people and they have done extremely great work. We have a very vibrant next generation organization that are doing lots of educational and um you know social um events and their next event was actually coming up before the uh the derby sale they're having at Tattersalls they're having a national hunt um seminar for the next generation members which would be very very interesting with some great speakers um coming over to that um and then also the one of the areas that was raised was just getting back to the roots, getting back to 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 the members. Um, I think COVID played an awful lot of um, you know, bad effects in that we we all got a bit separated from each other, and I think that was felt in in the ITBA as well. So we've we've made a, a very particular effort this year to go to every region and have a breeders meeting in every region, revitalize the regional structure and the regional committees and get out on the road and hear from people. Um, and I think that's really important to be well aware of what your membership and what the needs of the industry are. It's very important to get out and talk to the people on the ground. Um, so we have been, our last regional membership is actually in South Leinster, it's coming up shortly. Um, and we're going to have um, one of those meetings. So very, very kindly Weatherbees have actually had a, a representative from Weatherbees at every one of those meetings. Um, and it's brilliant because they're able to talk about the key things that Weatherbees are doing, such as um, e-passports, which are, you know, for traceability and for um, security and, you know, all of the other things that are becoming so important. Um, and with the streamlining and the mo modernization of our industry, e-passports are, are definitely, you know, going to be something that's very important. And they've been able to talk to the breeders about how to access those. Um, and then the other things that we've been covering in these meetings are the likes of discussing the IRE incentive, which is something that has been brought on in conjunction with HRI and the ITBA, and it's supported by Irish Thoroughbred Marketing. It's an incentive that's, you know, vitally important for revitalising, you know, Irish Thoroughbreds um, in Ireland. So if an Irish bred wins an IRE race, they get €10,000 voucher to spend at Irish sales in Ireland. And um, that's very important because it's rewarding breeders in the sales ring. Um, and then they all, we also talk about the ITBA Philly scheme, which is also supported very thankfully by Weatherbees. Um, that National Hunt scheme has been so important to revitalising, you know, the Phillies racing structure um, to really you know you can see the effects at the races of how many fillies are now staying in training and definitely this scheme has been you know so important to backing that um and some of the other things that we we talk about are tams and tams is is uh an agricultural grant that is was available to other areas of agriculture previously in ireland but it wasn't available to equine breeders. Um, and it's something that we fought long and hard with in, in conjunction with other stakeholders in the industry to allow TAMS to be um, included for equine farmers. And so that includes sports horses and um, thoroughbreds. And it, it's been a huge development because this is something that allows uh, people to get grants to do uh, improvements to their, to their premises. Um, and that's going to be very important, particularly for the young generation going forward. Um, finally, just we're we're obviously the the, the crossover of, of seasons, um, national hunt and, and flat. Now, w would you say that the, the national hunt and, and flat breeding scene in Ireland is is as strong as each other, or or is is one side attracting most of your attention at present? Because I would look on from this side of the Irish Sea and see both in a very strong position. They're both, I mean, they're both in a very strong position. I would have to say I'm, I'm as keen, I'm as keen on um, national, you know, on flat and national hunt breathing. I, I'm passionate about both 
we recently had a very successful National Hunt Committee meeting um, and we try to to give our focus to to as much as possible. You know, we um, the ITBA fillies and mare scheme is something that has been, you know, as I said, very important to the National Hunt industry. And we we would put, you know, as much focus into, into that as we would to, you know, to any of the other areas that, that we look after. And um, yeah, we, I mean, we see both as being extremely important, extremely relevant. Ireland is famous the world over for our high quality of thoroughbreds, whether it's National Hunt or Flat. Um, Kathy, great stuff. That's been very insightful. I'm only disappointed that I haven't heard the, the Burmese mountain dogs in the background yet. So <laughs> They nearly did. Kathy, <laughs> uh, really appreciate your time. Good luck with everything this summer. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> Back with Lee Mottis, head of the Racing Post. Just a tip, please, Lee. A tip. Um, good race at Brighton today, Tom. The 320, the British EBF Ruby Jubilee Phillies handicap. Uh, 25 grand on offer for this handicap at Brighton. Not often you necessarily hear that. And there are some unexposed, potentially progressive fillies from the bigger yards taking part in this race. Um, and I'm siding uh, with one, uh, Tom, that represents the George Bowie Yard made in Kentucky. So a bit of a link to what we were talking about earlier on in the pod, what Nick was talking about. Um, she was a decent winner at Lingfield in late March. She has significant scope to improve, particularly, I think, at this distance. And I'm going to go with made in Kentucky to win the 320 at Brighton. The, the British EBF Ruby Jubilee Phillies handicap. You'd just call that the Rubilee, wouldn't you? <laughs> well yeah I, I heard how well tom you were selling that um the york ticket offer earlier on so i'm not surprised yeah. that you also yeah. can come up with a a catchy advertising tagline there rubilee last year's platy jubes all of it all of it right lee thanks ever so much um you'll all be pleased to know that nick luck will be back tomorrow that was tuesday the 2nd of may bye-bye You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.